Christ Church, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Exodus chapter 20, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 16. Please stand for the reading of God's holy word. This is no ordinary word. This is the word of God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the Lord of, of glory, the sovereign ruler over all. This is his authoritative, life-giving all-sufficient, efficacious word. Please hear it as such. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the 10 words, uh, the 10 commandments uh, found uh, in Exodus 20. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would grant us the grace to further understand and appreciate your law for us as Christian believers, the role the law plays in our lives and how it directs our hearts to Christ and gives us direction in how we ought to honor Christ, all for your glory. Lord, fill us with your spirit, illumine our hearts and minds, we pray, as we hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The Ten Commandments recorded in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5 are the summary of God's moral law. The summary of God's moral law. Of course, when you think about God's law in the Old Covenant, uh, we can understand it uh, divided into three and divided in three ways. Uh, we have his ceremonial law, which would uh, include all that took place in the temple and amidst the priesthood. Uh, there is the civil law, which was connected to the theocracy of Israel. And then there is what is called the moral law. And of course, we know that in the coming of Christ, the ceremonial law uh, became obsolete because Christ fulfilled the ceremonial law. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the true temple that was destroyed and raised up in three days. Uh, he, he is the great high priest. Uh, and then, of course, we have Christ uh, in his coming making the civil law obsolete because no longer are we a theocracy, as it were, as Israel was in the Old Covenant. Now, we are now a spiritual nation uh, living under various governments around the world, but ultimately under our Lord God. Uh, and so the the, the specific laws that were connected to Israel uh, in terms of its, uh, under its civil authority are no longer applicable in all their force uh, to us today. But the moral law uh, clearly is in force, and we have that summarized in the Ten Commandments. They are an expression of God's holy character, and they teach us how to live. They are an expression of God's holy character, and they teach us how to live. It used to be that every child in every church uh, would be able to rattle off the Ten Commandments uh, without a problem. Uh, but these days, our churches are busy entertaining kids, uh, uh, showing them all the smoke machines and the video games and... Uh, and, and the, the rock walls, and we're no longer discipling our children. And so these central aspects of the Christian life have been lost on so many 
uh, of our Christian young people, uh, many of whom are graduating from high school and leaving the church altogether and becoming what uh, demographers are calling nuns. That's the way they signify themselves as those who have no religion at all, but who grew up in uh, the church. So the Ten Commandments are central, dear ones, to Christian discipleship. How can we be faithful and godly Christians without a moral foundation? Let me ask that again. (laughs) How can we be faithful Christians without a moral foundation? Well, we can't. But the Ten Commandments certainly give us one. This is why most catechisms that were written in the 16th and 17th century Protestant Reformations and post-Reformation eras, um, they included the Ten Commandments, an exposition of the Ten Commandments. You'll find this in the Westminster Shorter Catechism and the Westminster Larger Catechism. You'll find this in Luther's Catechism. You'll find this in the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, where the Ten Commandments are unpacked along with the Apostles' Creed and the Lord's Prayer. You see, the Reformers and the Puritans rightly viewed the Ten Commandments as vital for spiritual growth and maturity. Vital for spiritual growth and maturity. We should therefore not only have these commandments committed to memory, but we should seek to understand them and even recite them in gathered worship as we do regularly Uh, here at Christ Church in our liturgy. So may we declare from the heart with the psalmist from Psalm 119, 73, quote, your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. And again, in verses 33 and 34, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart, a heart undivided to you, O Lord. May this be our prayer. Well, to this point, of course, we've considered the first eight commandments. Uh, That brings us tonight to the ninth commandment in Exodus 20 and verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And so there are really three points I want to make. These are, uh, you're going to find familiar because it's kind of how our catechisms unpack uh, each commandment. And so it's important that we understand what's forbidden in the ninth commandment, what's required in the ninth commandment, and then how the ninth commandment relates to our union with Christ as those who are forgiven sinners, but who also called Uh, to live with the fruit of righteousness, which means that we look to the moral law not just as that which exposes our sin and shows us our need for Christ, but also that which teaches us how to live the Christian life. And so we come to the first heading, what is forbidden in the ninth commandment? What is forbidden in the ninth commandment? Most of us, from our earliest days, were taught not to lie. We were taught not to lie. We were taught, rather, to be truth-tellers, to be honest, to be true with our words. Who wants to be around a liar? Who doesn't have a guilty conscience when they say things that are not 
true. Uh, Perhaps like me, in the past you have had friends uh, who seem to make it a pastime uh, to tell lies or so-called fibs. Uh, Some like to talk about white lies, uh, lies that they judge aren't harmful and so they can tell them. Of course, uh, lies are come in different ways and different manners, but they are they are sins against God and against against neighbor. We are taught to be truth tellers. If we grew up in Christian homes, we were rightly taught that lying and deceitfulness are of the devil. That lying and deceitfulness are of the devil. The one Jesus calls the father of of lies. While confronting the self-righteous and hypocritical Pharisees in John 8, 44, Jesus said this, quote, You are of your father, the devil. Jesus had a lot of tact. He was like preachers today. He's really nice. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Does it sound like these Pharisees were slaves to sin? Of course, Jesus goes on, the devil was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Man, that is, that is straightforward teaching on who the devil is And how lying relates to him. Again, there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Satan is a murderer and a liar. And when he speaks, he is full of lies. He's the father of lies. But our God is a God of truth. The God of truth. All his words are true. Romans 3 and verse 4. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Jesus, the Son of God, declares in John 14, 6, I am the way, the the truth, and the life. God is truth. He is the, the source and wellspring of truth. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the truth. The Holy Spirit in John 14, 17 is called the Spirit of Truth. So our blessed triune God is the God of truth, and there is no deceitfulness in Him. There is no darkness in Him. He is light and life and truth. As Christian believers, we are called to be a holy people, to reflect and shine forth the holiness of God. Therefore, to be a holy people, we must be a what? A truthful people, a people of truth, a people who believe the truth, who live according to the truth, and who tell the truth. And when we do not act in this way, we repent and we ask God for grace and forgiveness and to help us to learn from whatever it is we have done in terms of telling a lie or being untruthful or doing some of the things we're going to consider in just a few moments, and we ask for his forgiveness, but we don't go on in the lie. 
We don't continue on because when you lie, you, in, in order to keep going in that lie, you must tell what? More lies. And then the lie turns into another lie. And if you've lied to someone else, then that lie could be spread to someone else. I remember hearing the story of someone coming to a man and asking for forgiveness for telling a lie and, and slandering this person, which this slander got all over the place and everybody was talking about it. And the person then opened a window in this, this uh, apartment he was in, uh, in the high rise, and he ripped open this down pillow and he opened the window and all the feathers went everywhere. He said, thank you for coming to me and apologizing. Now go out and pick up all those feathers. And those feathers represent every, everywhere where that slander and that lie spread. It started with your mouth and your tongue and went all over. We are to be a truthful people, to tell the truth and live according to the truth and believe the truth. Pretty, pretty simple, right? Pretty straightforward. Well, as with the other commands, when we begin to, to drill down into the ninth commandment, we see how comprehensive it is. We discover that there's more than just not being a false witness in a courtroom, which is part of the application, of course, of this commandment. We also see how often and even daily we fail to keep the ninth commandment as we ought. So what is forbidden in the ninth commandment? Our Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 78, asks this question, what is forbidden in the ninth commandment? The answer is the ninth commandment forbids whatsoever is prejudicial or harmful or detrimental to truth. I'll say that again. The ninth commandment forbiddeth whatsoever is prejudicial, which means harmful or detrimental, to truth or injurious to our own or our neighbor's good name. Or injurious to our own or our neighbor's good name. Now, I have uh, uh, brought him up before, uh, Wilhelmus Abrockel. He was a Dutch uh, pastor in the 17th century, and his section uh, in his uh, four-volume work, A Christian's Reasonable Service on the Ten Commandments, is outstanding. And he provides many numerous, uh, many uh, and numerous practical ways in which a person breaks the ninth commandment. And also, it doesn't just include what comes out of the mouth, but often what comes in the ears as well. Number one, first thing he mentions, to break the ninth commandment means a person states untrue things. States untrue things. That is, lies in the absence of his neighbor, such as Potiphar's wife, toward Joseph in 1 Samuel 18.22. You remember what she did. She was uh, making uh, sexual advances at Joseph, and of course he kept saying no, 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 and finally she grabbed him and his, his, uh, his, his jacket, and he ran away from her, 
and she was still holding uh, his outer garment, and she lied and slandered him, and of course, it put him in jail. Saying untrue things, saying lies in the absence of our neighbor is breaking this commandment. That's pretty straightforward. Secondly, it's recounting things, he says, that are not certain, knowing them from hearsay and not knowing whether they be true or not. Yet again, recounting things that are not certain, knowing them from hearsay and not knowing whether they be true or not. It is being a false witness when we have some hearsay come to us and we begin to share that hearsay with others. Now, how many of you have done that? Let's all raise our hand. We have all done this. We see it happening all the time. It is a part of our culture. It's what the news, the entertainment news does all the time, 24 hours a day. We have heard that this might be true. And this person is guilty before they are declared innocent or proven innocent. It's the environment in which we live, and it's ungodly. It's wicked. So we ought not to recount things that are not certain, that we don't know for sure are true. Thirdly, we sin, Brockle says, if we have a suspicion that someone has done this or that and we express that suspicion to others. You know what this is like. I think this person did this. I think that person didn't do what they were supposed to do. You have the suspicion that this is the case, but you don't know it for certain. You don't know that to be true. This is bearing false witness against our neighbor. Fourthly, we sin, he writes, if we recount the true faults of our neighbor. Okay, this. Be it that they were hidden or that everyone knows of them. So whether they're hidden things or whether everyone knows about them, we sin if we recount or rehearse the true faults of our neighbor. This is, this is no longer our brockle, this is pain. This is what we call gossip. It's what we call gossip. It's when we find pleasure in discussing the weaknesses or faults of others, often to make ourselves look good. Often because we ourselves are so insecure in ourselves that we have to go after others in order to make ourselves look good better than we are. And this is a sin against the ninth commandment. I've often found in the last over 20 years of, of full-time pastoral ministry uh, that those, whether they be pastors or whether they be lay people who are constantly criticizing others and, and constantly saying things that they do not know for certain and constantly slandering others and being hypercritical are the most insecure people on the face of the earth. They're not secure in the love of God, and so they are always trying to prove themselves, and they do so by comparison. And there are two kinds of people who are always living by comparison. One, who's comparing themselves and always 
pointing out the weaknesses in the other person in order to make themselves feel better about themselves. And that never works, by the way. And then the second person who's comparing all the time is constantly comparing themselves and seeing themselves as a horrible person. I'm never good enough. And so they find themselves in that place. And comparison, as you know, is the thief of joy. And it's, 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 it's in a heart that's not actually being honest, certain of the facts. Fifthly, we are also guilty of backbiting if we but ask, he writes, have you heard this about so-and-so? In other words, we're breaking the ninth commandment if we are trying to drum up dirt or if we are wanting to talk about that dirt uh, with others. Again, gossip. But it's not just saying things that breaches the, uh, the ninth commandment. The hearer can also be guilty of breaking the ninth commandment. How so? Uh, Brockle writes, if he inwardly delights that his neighbor is depicted in such a fashion and with relish listens to this gossip. He did what? She said what? Tell me more. Let's go out and get a cup of coffee. Inwardly delighting. Someone is being depicted in this way. Rather than have compassion on them and to pray for them, it's time to tear them up, to gossip. This is a breaking of the ninth commandment, and it's also a breaking of other commandments as well. Uh, number two, if due to curiosity, he gives another person the opportunity to gossip. Thirdly, if by smiling, nodding, or by saying, what are you saying, he stimulates the backbiter to say more. And fourthly, if he does not speak and is silent and allows the person to continue speaking. One of the big questions we ought to ask ourselves when we consider the ninth commandment and all of these ways that we break the ninth commandment and that people break the ninth commandment is, how would we ourselves want to be treated when it concerns these matters? Would we want others sitting around discussing our faults without any really constructive ends to that? Any redemptive reasons for that? any ways to move things forward or out of love for that person, wanting to see things move forward? Or would we be happy for others to be speaking about us the way we often speak about them? Oh, how we have all failed and fallen short in this area. Question and answer 112 of the Heidelberg Catechism. There is a wonderful statement in connection with what is forbidden in the Ninth Commandment. And it says this, that I never give false testimony against anyone, twist no one's words, not gossip or slander, nor join in condemning anyone rashly or without a hearing. Rather, in court and everywhere else, I should avoid lying and deceit of every kind. These are the very devices the devil uses, and they would call down on me God's 
intense wrath. You see, when we lie, when we are deceitful, when we have patterns in our speech and in our listening and in our living of being deceitful, manipulative, and lying, then we are reflecting, of course, not the holiness of God, but the wickedness of Satan. Remember what Jesus said about the Pharisees. They were showing the character of the one, their father, whom they were imitating. And so let us not be liars. Some might ask, well, pastor, is there ever a time that it is appropriate to lie? And the answer is, of course there is. Of course there is. For instance, if someone were to come and knock on my door, and I knew, for some reason or another, that this person wanted to kidnap my family and take them away, and they knocked on the door and asked me, is your family home? And let's just say my family was up hiding in the attic. I would say, no, they are not home. And I would not be sinning against God by doing so because I'd be protecting the lives of my family. And so what this person who has asked me, he has forfeited, this person has forfeited the right to hear the truth because of the malintention that he has. Of course, we know that this illustration uh, uh, becomes very real in the 1940s when in Nazi Germany, uh, the SS was going around and pulling people out of homes and putting them on trains and sending them to concentration camps. And there were times when these soldiers would, would break through the door and begin to search the house. And they would ask questions, do you have any Jews here? And of course, there were many courageous and heroic Germans who hid uh, these Jews and, of course, said, no, there aren't any here and at the risk of their very lives. So there are times, of course, when, uh, when lying is uh, not a sin but necessary, uh, but these are sometimes the ethical um, situations that arise and we need to be careful with them. Most of the lying, it is safe to say, most of the deceit, most of the manipulation that happens uh, in our world and in our lives is very much not um, something that we um, should be doing. What is, secondly, required in the Ninth Commandment? What is required in the Ninth Commandment? The rest of that section in Hatterberg Catechism, Answer 112, says, it says this, I should love the truth. Speak it candidly and openly acknowledge it. And I should do what I can to guard and advance my neighbor's good name. Let me read that again. I should love the truth, speak it candidly, and openly acknowledge it. And I should do what I can to guard and advance my neighbor's good name. This doesn't always mean that you need to offer every bit of information or every opinion that you might have. There are times when we need to be courteous, when we need to withhold our opinion. 
Being a truth teller doesn't mean you walk around offending people all the time. You look terrible, honey. Could you please go change? To be those who love the truth, speak it candidly, and openly acknowledge it. We should be known as honest people, full of integrity, as God's people. In Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 77, the question is asked, what is required in the Ninth Commandment? Answer, the Ninth Commandment requireth the maintaining and promoting of truth between man and man, and of our own and our neighbor's good name, especially in witness bearing, that is, in the courtroom or in uh, some kind of official capacity. So we learn here we are to maintain the truth. We are to, secondly, promote the truth. Why? For the sake of our own and our neighbor's good name or reputation. Are we concerned for the reputation of our neighbors as much as we are for our, our own is, of course, as the divines say, especially in witness-bearing, giving testimony in a courtroom or elsewhere. Sadly, we live in a culture that has thrown off uh, its Judeo-Christian heritage, uh, where uh, the Ten Commandments are uh, not only not known, but when they are known or discovered in public places, people want it removed. Um, becoming easier and easier to imagine what Sodom and Gomorrah must have been like. And so lying has become a, a part of, of our society in a way that it never has before. People are lying to one another, and they are lying to themselves. We see the triumph of lies and deceit in the transgender movement where you can ask a direct question and everybody seems to be settled and happy in believing a lie. But we are a people who live by grace through faith in the kingdom of light and truth and not in the kingdom of darkness and lies. Remember, as we've been learning in Romans, we have been set free from that kingdom of darkness. We've been set free from slavery to sin and death and the devil. And we are now in Christ and in the kingdom of light and darkness. We want our lives to be open. I can say without any hesitation, if, if, if one of you said, Pastor, I'm going to leave this church unless I can come and, and take a look at all of your computers and all of your phones, and look in all of your closets, and under the bed, and in your drawers, and in all the secret places, and I'm going to leave the church if you don't let me do that, because I just don't believe that you're living with integrity. I would first of all say, you're kind of weird, and then I'd secondly say, go ahead. I have nothing to hide. I have nothing to hide, and it's wonderful to have a clear conscience, Amen. It's wonderful to be able to go to bed at night and to have a clear conscience. Now, that's not claiming perfection. But we as Christians are to have 
an openness about us. Uh, uh, a, 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 we live in the light. We don't live in the shadows. We live with integrity. When we sin, we go to the Lord and we ask for forgiveness and we seek to live holier lives in the future. We are a people who believe and live in the truth, not in lies and the perpetuation of lies. We are a people who are called to love our neighbor, and loving our neighbor means advancing and protecting their good name, not slandering it. We all know the subtle ways that we can give a false witness. We know what that looks like. And this sermon is very convicting to me as I think about how in studying for this sermon, my own speech patterns and, and, and the ways that I communicate things, I want, it to be, I want it to be holy. I want it to be full of integrity and, and not in these ways that can, can cast doubt on people or suspicion or to be unkind or to in any way even appear to be happy with the, the weaknesses and faults of others. Or to say half-truths that advance your own cause but hurt others. We all know these subtle ways that we can give a false witness. Again, either by straight-out lying or by exaggeration and manipulation. And by gestures and tones in our voice. Lord, forgive us for these things. Our mouths and our tongues should be fountains of righteousness, not polluted wells. Deceit. I love what Thomas Watson states in his commentary on the Ten Commandments. He says this, quote, The tongue, which was made at first to be an organ of God's praise, is now become an instrument of unrighteousness. And he's grabbing that language from Romans 6, isn't he? He then goes on to say this, This commandment, the ninth commandment, binds the tongue to its good behavior. God has set two natural fences to keep in the tongue, the teeth and the lips. And this commandment is the third fence set about it, that it should not break forth into evil. Of course, James, James chapter 3 goes on and on in a very convicting way about the tongue. With it, we praise the Lord, and with it, we curse men. See, the tongue can be used for blessing, but it can also be used for cursing. Dear ones, please hear this. Lying, deceit, gossip, backbiting, exaggeration, manipulation, and slander are all sins against God and our neighbor, they encompass bearing false witness. These sins spoil friendships. They wreck marriages. They corrupt governments. They destroy trust in society and culture. And they divide churches. And so, as we consider the ninth commandment, let us consider how we live and how we speak in the midst and context of all these various spheres of our lives so that we 
honor God and be truth tellers, obeying the ninth commandment. Well, how does all of this relate to our union and communion with Christ? Well, said already, we must all admit that in our lives, we have failed miserably to do all that is required in this commandment. Praise be to God that as we look at this command as in a mirror and reflected back to us are all the myriad sins that we have committed in our lifetimes, even this past week, we know that we have a Savior who came to the world, who was born of a virgin, and for the entirety of his life perfectly obeyed the ninth commandment. He did all things that were required in the ninth commandment. He never did anything that was forbidden in the ninth commandment. In fact, we see this wonderful language in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 25, where Peter writes this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Of course, Peter is drawing upon language from Isaiah chapter 53. There was no deceit found in his mouth. There was no sin in him. And as a perfect lamb, a spotless lamb, a perfect law keeper, the last person in the universe who deserved to be placed on that cross, he became sin for us. He paid the debt of our sin, and he paid for every single bearing of false witness that you and I have ever committed. And oh, how many, many sins there are in that category. And that's just one of the commandments. He paid for the sins of the breaking of all ten by all of us how many times over? The Lord gave himself for us. He paid the debt of our sin that we would be freed from slavery to sin and then shackled to God as a slave of God, Romans 6, to walk in the newness of life as a justified, forgiven sinner who is being sanctified and seeking to honor the Lord in our lives. How are we to live? United to Christ, again, we are no longer under the tyranny and mastery of sin. We are to live by faith in Christ and thus in obedience to him and his commands. Remember in Romans 6, again, how this language is used. We are called Slaves of obedience, slaves of righteousness, 
and slaves of God all there in that section in Romans 6. So how are we to live in response to this, this grace that has been lavished upon us? In union with Christ, we are to live as those who are slaves of obedience. We are to pursue righteousness and to live according to God's law. Now, lest anybody is confused about this, what I am not saying is that by our obedience, we add anything to what Christ has done to save us from our sins. Christ's righteousness is enough, amen? Christ's death is enough. There's nothing to add to what Christ has done. It is Christ and his work alone that are the grounds of our salvation. If we try to add something to those grounds, we are showing that we do not understand those grounds and that we don't understand the gospel because the gospel is not Christ's work plus my good works equals acceptance with God. The gospel is Christ's work received by grace through faith and it's a gift of God lest any man should boast equals salvation. The grounds of salvation are Christ's work alone and by grace through faith in Him. Faith is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. And so we pursue righteousness as those who are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Dear ones, 1 Corinthians 13 states that love rejoices in the truth. Love rejoices in the truth. That's why so many versions of love in this world today are actually not true love. God is love. True expressions of love come through Him and are reflected back to Him when they reflect truth. Psalm 51.6 Psalmist prays, Behold, O Lord, you delight in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. This is, again, what Paul talks about when in union with Christ there is obedience from the heart. It's a sincere obedience, not a perfect obedience, but this is the heart of someone walking with God. It is the heart of who recognizes that God himself delights in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Lord, teach me. You delight in truth and integrity and honesty, and I want to be that person. Now, in Christ, I am forgiven of all of my many sins, but in him I am called to live a life of growing and grateful obedience to the word of God and to the commands of God, not least the ninth commandment. Dear ones, as we close, let's make this our prayer from Psalm 19:14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this commandment and our brief time considering some of the truth that 
issues forth from it. Father, we thank you that through this commandment you show us our many sins. You restrain so much sin in our own lives and the world through it. And Lord, you also show us how to live as members of the body of Christ, as those who are in union with your Son. We pray that we would be truth-tellers, that we would not be gossips or slanderers or those who seek to use language manipulatively or deceitfully, and that we would not stand to listen to such talk, but lovingly and graciously changing conversation, turning discussion to other things when it becomes apparent that it's ungodly. All because we want to please you, Father. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for his life, his death, and his resurrection. Thank you that no deceit was found in his mouth and that on the cross, as the righteous one, he paid for our myriad iniquities, breaches of the ninth commandment. Help us in him to walk in loving, thankful obedience. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.